Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And this is part three, the part three and final part so far of my series about General Motors. So if you're just tuning in, you might want to seek out the first two episodes in this series that published over the last two weeks. In those episodes, I explain how William C. Durant started General Motors by first buying Buick, then creating a holding company called General Motors, and then by buying up a whole bunch of other car companies like Oldsmobile and Cadillac, as well as other companies that specialized in making various parts that were used in cars. I also talked about how Durant's investors kicked him out of the company for accruing debt and how Durant was able to buy his way back into the company and then how he got kicked out of it again. Then I talked about Durant's successor, Alfred Sloan, who was skilled in reducing costs and increasing efficiency and maximizing profits, but was very much not interested in stuff like, you know, worker conditions and compensation. I also talked about GM's controversial activities leading up to World War II and how the company appeared to play at least some part in helping Hitler's war machine get started in Germany before doing the same thing in the United States. So today, we're going to pick up post-World War II for the most part. We're going to do some backtracking. I apologize for that. It's just it's a complicated story. Anyway, while Sloan definitely had some qualities that I personally find pretty distasteful, there was no denying that he was brilliant at managing a company. Sloan had organized General Motors not by function, so it wasn't like it was organized by sales and then marketing and then manufacturing across all the different brands. Instead, he organized it by division, and so each division would oversee a specific brand of cars. So the Buick line had its own sales department, its own marketing department, its own manufacturing department, so on. And Cadillac was the same and Pontiac and Oldsmobile, etc. So each division had its own general manager who was responsible for keeping down costs and maximizing profits. And Sloan essentially created the model that many, if not most, modern big industrial corporations follow today. Much of the design he brought over from DuPont. He had kind of picked that up from DuPont's businesses, but he added his own elements to it as well. And as such, in business, there are a lot of people who study Sloan's, you know, leadership strategy and organizational strategy. In fact, if you remove people from the equation, if you forget that people exist, then Sloan's models are really effective. It's kind of like looking at a logic puzzle where you need to reduce one component. In this case, that would be, you know, loss or cost and maximize another component. That would be profit. But trouble starts to pop up when you happen to think of things like salaries as part of your costs and people as assets. That kind of thinking where you have removed yourself from thinking about the human condition uh, that doesn't always end well. It tends to lead to things like unionization and strikes as people say, hey, we aren't just numbers on a spreadsheet. Now, General Motors certainly found this to be true. And while the company didn't employ the same violent tactics that, say, Ford did, the disputes with organized workers were pretty dramatic. But let's push forward. And that means having to go back a bit. 
See, one of the really important people in General Motors history, whom I have not mentioned yet, is Harley Earl, a professional designer. He was born in 1893 in Hollywood, California. His father, Jacob W. Earl, was a coach builder in the 19th century, and he owned a business called, fittingly enough, Earl Coach Works. Oh, and while Harley would call California home, Jacob was actually from somewhere else. He was from Cadillac, Michigan. Because when we talk about automotive efforts in the United States, it always comes back to Michigan. And Jacob's son Harley would be a huge influence on Cadillacs, as well as Michigan, and other parts of General Motors as well. So after the turn of the century, Jacob began to expand his business a little bit. While he had started out repairing and building horse-drawn coaches, he branched out by working on early automobiles. And it was clear to him that the car was going to replace the older forms of transportation. So with that in mind, Jacob founded Earl Automotive Works, a custom shop in Hollywood, California, where the main customers were producers and movie stars and studios. In fact, a lot of, co of the company's early customers were producers who needed specialty vehicles for the motion pictures, like horse-drawn vehicles, like, uh, like, like Roman chariots. So there's nothing like really getting into the early automotive industry and, and still having to put aside time to design, you know, a chariot or two. Harley Earl would work in his father's shop after school where he got hands-on experience learning about mechanical systems, but he was also a keen academic student and he attended Stanford University, didn't complete it, but he went there and he had a major in engineering. He also would occasionally get into a bit of trouble by apparently borrowing cars that his dad had been working on and then racing those cars without his dad's knowledge and frequently winning. There's a story that goes that his dad found out about this after reading an article in a local newspaper that detailed uh, Harley Earl's victorious run with a car that most certainly did not belong to Harley Earl. By 1918, Earl's automotive company's business was really booming, and Harley Earl decided to drop out of college in order to work at the shop full-time. He became known for working on and designing custom-made car bodies that really stood out, particularly in a world where the Model T Ford had created a sort of uniformity in the automotive industry. In 1919, a man named Don Lee, the owner of the Don Lee Coach and Body Works Company, acquired the Earl Automotive Company, but he kept Jacob and Son in charge of it. And now I suddenly want to sing Andrew Lloyd Webber lyrics for Jacob and Son. But anyway, Harley Earl became the chief designer for this branch of Lee's company, and Lee was the leading distributor of General Motors' Cadillac line on the West Coast. So by the mid-1920s, Harley Earl was quite the figure in Hollywood. He had made friends with various celebrities and studio heads through his work on custom car bodies, and he was kind of living the celebrity lifestyle. One thing Harley Earl adopted early on that would set him apart from other designers is that he would design a car body and then he would sculpt his design in three dimensions using clay. Now at this time in car design, that just wasn't standard operating procedure. But Earl pr proved that, you know, realizing designs in three dimensions really helped him create evocative body designs, and no doubt it helped him close numerous deals as well when clients got a chance to see the model and then imagine themselves tooling down Sunset Boulevard in a full-sized version. 
Earl's approach would be the one that would see widespread adoption throughout the car industry moving forward. In 1925, Larry Fisher, the head of the Cadillac division at General Motors, tapped Harley Earl to design the companion make to the Cadillac. This one was called the LaSalle. So if you remember, GM had identified that there were price gaps between their different brands that they could target, but they didn't want to make certain brands more expensive or other brands less expensive because that could change the perception of the brand. So instead, they introduced companion brands to fill in those gaps. LaSalle was the slightly less expensive version of Cadillac. Not really version, I should say companion to Cadillac. They were distinct. So Earl agreed, and he created four different clay models. He had a touring car, a sedan, a roadster, and a coupe. And Alfred Sloan would approve all four of those models for production. In 1927, Earl joined General Motors as the head of a design division at that time called Art and Color. He was one of the earliest, perhaps first, professional designers to work in the automotive industry. Now, I'm not going to go through all the different designs that Earl created because, again, that would be an exhaustive podcast. Also, it wouldn't be very effective because, I don't know if you noticed, but this is an audio podcast, and you should really spend your time looking at some pictures of cars that Earl had a hand in designing. That would be far more effective. I should also point out that as his career went on, he spent less time hands-on designing vehicles and more time overseeing teams of designers who were doing that, although he still had the authority to approve or deny any style changes. It's important to know that it was these designs that Earl came up with that aligned with Alfred Sloan's vision of bringing new styles of cars to market year after year, thus creating almost a kind of planned obsolescence approach to the auto industry. Now, it wasn't that the cars would just poop out after a year of operation. They didn't. They were, for the most part, reliable machines if you maintained them properly. It was more that by creating a signature style that would change over time, GM also created an incentive to buy new cars, at least for the people who could afford to do that kind of thing. You know, cars have always been tied to status symbols, and having a car with a distinctive modern look has a real sort of social cachet to it. Earl ushered in a new era in industrial design, creating an approach to integrated design that used a single team to work on all aspects of a specific product, from the way it looks, to how it operates and handles, to how it's marketed and priced. This unified method meant that everyone was on the same page when it came to the project. There was no worry about handing this off to a different team and then seeing all of your hard work get mishandled by them. It was Earl who designed features that would later become iconic in the automotive world, such as the curled tail lights on Cadillacs in the late 1940s, or the fins on Cadillacs not long after. Those were from Harley Earl. Earl was also an early pioneer in concept cars. So for those unfamiliar with that term, a concept car is a showcase vehicle. It's not intended to go into production. It's not meant to be a vehicle that the common person could purchase at some point. So you should never expect to see a concept car in a line in a car dealership parking lot or anything like that. Rather, these cars show off design elements and technologies that might find their way into later production vehicles. And often these concept cars wouldn't even be street legal as designed. So it's meant to show possibility, but not 
you know, a guarantee that this is what you're going to see in the dealerships the following year. It's a way to get ideas off the ground and get the automotive world excited about those ideas. So one of the earliest concept cars, in fact, uh, it's often cited as the first concept car was the, uh, the Buick Y job from 1938. It was one that Harley Earl worked on. The Y job was a two door convertible. It had some pretty cool features like wraparound bumpers. It even had electric windows, which was pretty novel for the time. And many of the car's features would find their way into future production cars. As for the Y job itself, Earl would drive it around for many, many years. Uh, It belongs in a museum and now it's in one. It is not an exaggeration to say that the big reason GM was able to overtake and hold on to the number one car company in the United States was in large part thanks to Earl's design team. By 1940, that team had grown large enough to warrant a new facility, but World War II changed things dramatically. GM would initially resist the push to switch over to wartime production, but once it did, nearly all of the company's manufacturing capabilities were redirected to building vehicles, engines, and other material for the U.S. war effort, at least in this country. To hear about how GM's subsidiary, Opel, played a part producing material for the Axis powers, you should listen to the previous General Motors episode. Harley Earl made waves in the business world in general and the automotive industry in particular when he began hiring women designers starting in the early 1940s. Now, at the time, such a thing was unheard of, but Earl insisted on it. And you could also make at least some argument that a little bit of this might have been by necessity because a lot of male engineers were drafted to support the United States in World War II. But Earl's efforts to bring women onto teams didn't end with World War II, and he even formed an all-women team of designers to work on vehicles in the 1950s, which was so newsworthy that it's embarrassing, (laughs) because it just points out how much of a disparity there was between men and women in the workplace in the 1950s. He maintained that including multiple points of view really helps the best ideas rise to the top, which is a philosophy I happen to share. It's one of the big reasons that I feel inclusion and diversity are great things to embrace, because not only does it help address inequities that have existed for far too long, but we all benefit when everyone gets a chance to contribute. Anyway, let's get back to General Motors. Because now we're at the point where World War II has ended. So we're caught up now. In 1946, Alfred P. Sloan stepped down as CEO of General Motors. He was, however, still chairman of the board, and he would remain so until 1956. And even then, he was elected honorary chairman, which was a position he held until he passed away a decade later at the age of 90. In 1947, General Motors opened a new automobile factory in Van Nuys, California. Now, originally, this plant would be in charge of manufacturing trucks under the Chevrolet brand, but later it would produce iconic cars like the Camaro, the El Camino, the Firebird, the Monte Carlo, and more. The plant remained in operation for about 40 years, but GM would shut it down in 1992. Now, I think we could mark... 1950 as sort of being the beginning of the golden age of automobiles, or at least the automobile industry. Cars represented the platform upon which most of the cutting-edge technology sat. That's where you would see cool tech was in cars. That was like the number one spot. Detroit, Michigan was the technological center of the United States at this point in history. 
and it would remain so for a couple of decades until some eggheads out in California began to create what would become Silicon Valley. In 1950, Michigan had more millionaires in it than any other state in the United States, mostly thanks to the automotive industry. Cars were king. When we come back, we'll learn about what happened to GM over the following decades, with a few shoutouts to some specific makes and models. But first, let's take a quick break. We're back and heading into the 1950s. GM was one of the largest employers in the world at that time. It was certainly the biggest employer in the United States. It had more than 575,000 employees in 1955. That meant it employed twice as many people as the next largest company in the U.S., which was U.S. Steel. The next car company on the list that year would top out at number four. That was Chrysler, with 167,000 or so employees. GM was dominating. In fact, in 1955, the company reported that after taxes, it would take in a profit of more than $1 billion, the first U.S. company to hit a billion-dollar profit in a year. It would also become the first company to have to pay a billion dollars in taxes, which will be an interesting fact to reflect on when we get to the early 2000s and beyond. That's foreshadowing. Something else that loomed over GM in the 1950s was an escalating legal battle. In 1949, the federal government sued the E.I. DuPont de Nemours and Company. Now, you might remember way back in part one of this series that the DuPont family was largely responsible for helping GM founder William Durant return to GM, only to subsequently force Durant out once it appeared that Durant was going to continue accruing debt. Well, the DuPonts remained major investors in GM, and by 1949, they owned around 23% of the company. The U.S. government alleged that the DuPonts were using this ownership to leverage GM to purchase paint and fabric primarily from DuPont-owned businesses, meaning that the DuPonts were making use of anti-competitive practices. In fact, by 1947, nearly 70% of all the paint GM purchased was from DuPont, and nearly 40% of all the fabric was from DuPont as well. The lawsuit in 1948 was a big publicized deal. Harry Truman's administration had filed the suit, and 1948 was an election year in the U.S., so Truman's platform included a strong stance against monopolies and trusts, and GM and DuPont were kind of in his sights. Now, the initial case failed to bring out any indictments, but then the U.S. filed a civil case against DuPont in 1949, and GM was a co-defendant in that case. That case didn't actually go to trial until 1952 because justice moves at a certain pace here in the U.S. The trial stretched on for more than a year. It ended in December 1953, and it wasn't until the following year when Judge Walter Labai ruled in favor of the defendants, in favor of DuPont and GM. But the U.S. government appealed this ruling to the Supreme Court, by this time, we're talking about the Eisenhower administration. That Truman administration is long gone by now. And over two days in 1956, both sides got to argue their case in front of the Supreme Court. And in 1957, the court ruled in favor of the U.S. government. So they reversed the decision. 
at that stage, this case went back down to the district courts, which were now tasked with the duty of figuring out how were the DuPonts going to extricate themselves from their ownership of that 23% of General Motors. This trial happened in 1959. Once again, we have Judge LeBay overseeing the case. This included arguments that selling off the large number of shares of General Motors could cause the value of the company's stocks to plummet. And because GM was such a huge employer in the United States, that in turn could lead to a general recession and layoffs and essentially doomsday. So LeBay ruled that the DuPonts wouldn't have to get rid of their stake in GM if they passed the voting rights for their shares to DuPont shareholders and then maintain a greater distance from GM's activities. But that wasn't good enough for the U.S. government, which by this time was going into another election year. And so the U.S. government appealed this decision to the Supreme Court, which heard the case again, or this new case connected to the previous one, and the court determined that contrary to LeBay's ruling, DuPont had to be forced to divest all GM stocks entirely. Congress, meanwhile, helped ease this a little bit by scaling back the tax burden on the sale of stocks, which otherwise could have cost the DuPonts about a billion dollars just in selling those stocks. So the DuPonts divested themselves of that stake gradually in various sales uh, that concluded in 1965 with the final 2.3 million shares they still owned in GM. So from start to finish, this whole process took more than 15 years. Now, in those 15 years, a lot was also happening at General Motors. The company introduced the Corvette at the Motorama Auto Show in 1953. This car had uh, fiberglass body panels, which was new, had a six-cylinder engine under the hood, which was not as powerful as a lot of people were hoping for. Uh, The original model was a two-speed automatic transmission, and GM's Chevrolet made 300 of the original Corvettes, all of them with white exteriors and red interiors. Out of those 300, GM was able to sell 183 of them. The Corvette start wasn't exactly auspicious, but obviously the company didn't just abandon the idea. Unlike the experience of driving a later Corvette, it took a while for the actual brand to get up to speed. And to be fair, the old six-cylinder Corvettes took about 11 seconds to accelerate to 60 miles per hour, or around 97 kilometers per hour. The following year, GM moved production to a manufacturing facility in Missouri with the capacity to produce 10,000 vehicles per year, but due to low demand, it only produced around 3,600 cars in 1954. Then GM switched gears, so to speak, in 1955, and the new Corvettes would have V8 engines, which boosted the car's horsepower considerably, and also the performance, so it drove more like a true sports car. And the 1956 model would have a newly designed front end and sides that had scalloped curves, and it gave the Corvette a really sleek and futuristic kind of appearance. And each subsequent year, the car would get redesigns, and frequently those redesigns also included ways to boost the car's horsepower, which transformed the Corvette from a substandard sports car to a decent sports car to one of the premier sports car lines in the United States. In general, the 1950s saw GM introduce a lot of daring and iconic designs thanks to Harley Earl's teams, 
Uh, those tail fins we associate with the 1950s come from there. In fact, my favorite car from GM ever came out during this time period. It's the 1959 Cadillac Fleetwood Series 75. This thing is an enormous monster of a vehicle. Huge, it's heavy, it's got the fins. But the reason why I love it is because it happens to be Doc Hopper's car in the Muppet movie. Doc Hopper was the bad guy, and I always thought his Cadillac was just the most incredible looking car. Anyway, Harley Earl retired from General Motors in 1958 when he reached the age of 65. It was a mandatory retirement, and his successor was William, or Bill, Mitchell. Mitchell had joined Harley's team of designers in the 1930s. He had become a director-level executive in the 1950s and became a vice president in charge of all styling at GM in 1958. Under Mitchell's guidance, GM began to move a little away from the more flashy and ornamental aspects that had become part of various car designs under Earl's leadership. Not that all the cars produced during his tenure uh, ended up being purely utilitarian. I don't want to give you that impression. There were some standout flashy cars like the 1963 Corvette Stingray, which has quite the profile if you ever look it up. Uh, the, the Corvette Stingray, the 63 one, also has a split back windscreen. So the back windshield is is split. There's a divider, a metal divider in the center which um, looks really cool, but, you know, it's probably not the most convenient feature if you want an unfettered rear view out of your, your rear view mirror. Later models would ditch that split windshield and would go for a single piece windshield instead. One of the things that GM vehicles were built upon was the fact that fuel in the 50s and 60s was cheap and plentiful. You could have these huge cars that guzzled gas because Gas was easy to come by, and it didn't cost very much. And so American car companies were churning out these big, inefficient cars through the 50s and 60s and into the 70s. And GM was not the only manufacturer to do this. It was pretty common across the industry in America. Well, that would all change due to a massive energy crisis. And to understand that crisis, we have to learn about a conflict in 1973 that had several names. It was called the Arab-Israeli War of October 1973. Sometimes it's called the Yom Kippur War, and sometimes it's called the Ramadan War. The primary nations involved were Egypt and Syria on one side, and Israel on the other. But of course, the allies of these countries were kind of pulled in, at least at a diplomatic level and a support level. And that ended up being pretty intense, because those allies included the Soviet Union, which was allied with Egypt and Syria, and the United States, which was allied with Israel. At the heart of the matter was that the Arabic nations wanted to have land that Israel had claimed in a previous war uh, released. They wanted Israel to relinquish those territories that it had occupied after a previous war from a few years earlier, and Israel declined to acquiesce to the request. Now, the war lasted most of that October, while the United Nations was putting pressure on all parties to stop the hostilities. While the countries signed a ceasefire agreement in November of that year, tensions remained high. The UN sent in a peacekeeping force to kind of act as a buffer between Israel and Egypt, and ultimately in 1979, Israel and Egypt came to an agreement that saw Israel withdraw from the Sinai Peninsula. Anyway, one of the many consequences of these hostilities is that 
The Arabic nations in the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, decided to penalize countries like the United States and much of Western Europe. You know, these were parties that had aligned with Israel. The Arab countries voted to prohibit exports, oil exports, to those countries, which plunged that part of the world into an oil shortage. This coincided with a general market recession crisis and made it, uh, let me check my notes here, um, a billion times worse for those countries. Now that's hyperbole, it's my hyperbole, but you get the point. All of a sudden, it became imperative for countries like the United States to change course. No longer could the country just burn through oil without reservation. Oil was hard to come by, there were gas shortages across the United States, it was suddenly a very bad idea to be in the business of building fuel-hungry automobiles. As such, companies like GM had to make a hard pivot. While OPEC would lift the oil embargo in 1974, the economic damage had already been done. The value of the U.S. dollar was down, oil prices remained really high, so while the U.S. could import oil, it was expensive. So gone were the days of plentiful and cheap oil of the 50s and 60s. This is also when you started seeing national security strategists point out that a heavy dependence on outside entities for fuel is a pretty enormous security flaw. Always in hindsight, right? A secondary oil crisis in 1979 really reinforced this problem. This one was a crisis brought about due to a, a revolution in Iran. So what was going on with the car companies? Well, one thing that happened in 1973 at GM was that one of the company's executives was leaving, not specifically due to the crisis, although he would later say that he felt that GM had kind of sealed its own fate by not pursuing projects that would involve producing more small and mid-sized vehicles. Uh, he had headed up the Pontiac and then later the Chevrolet divisions in the late 1960s. He was also thought to be a potential contender for the CEO position in the future. But the funny thing about the future is that it's impossible to predict, unless you happen to have been to the future already. That, by the way, is my coy way of saying this particular GM executive was John Z. DeLorean the same man who would be behind the DMC-12, a.k.a. the DeLorean, used in the Back to the Future movies. Yep, he was a GM executive before he moved on. He was also part of the team that had made the GTO in the early 60s, which ushered in the era of the muscle car. And again, muscle cars, not really viable in a world where you can't just feed them endless amounts of gasoline. So when DeLorean left, he said that one of the things that convinced him to go and I should add, there are some accounts that say he didn't actually have a choice in the matter that he was forced to leave GM as opposed to uh, he chose to leave. But uh, that's a story on its own. Anyway, he said that one of the reasons he left was because he felt that GM had stopped innovating. He claimed that there had been no real significant technological innovation since power steering had been introduced in the late 1940s and that the company was just focused on styling changes from year to year and it was more about moving little pieces of metal around on a car in order to try and sell the same thing the following year, but just change up the appearance, and not about actual innovation. But GM's problems extended beyond the oil crisis and a flamboyant executive leaving the nest. The U.S. automotive industry was about to face some pretty big competition from overseas. 
I'll explain more after we take this quick break. In 1974, the New York Times published an article that said, quote, probably no American company has suffered so swift and stunning a blow from the energy crisis as the General Motors Corporation, end quote. The article stated that GM had seen a 35% decline in sales and had fallen from being the most profitable industrial company in the U.S. Instead, taking its place was the Exxon Corporation an oil company. That's probably another company I should cover at some point in the future. So GM shut down most of its assembly plants, and partly this was a cost-saving measure, but mostly it was because the company needed to do some serious retooling of its manufacturing lines in order to switch over to producing smaller, more fuel-efficient vehicles. Since the 1950s, the German auto company Volkswagen had found success exporting the Volkswagen Type 1, better known as the Volkswagen Beetle or Bug here in the U.S., and Japanese companies began to join the club in the early 1970s. But by 1972, all foreign cars added up together made up only 13% share of the U.S. automotive market. The cars were mostly smaller, and many of them were less expensive than American cars, but they didn't get much attention in general until we had an oil crisis. People still needed to get around, but they didn't want frequent stops at gas stations siphoning away their cash. Imports from Germany and Japan began to see greater success in the U.S. market, and they really established themselves, and now American companies suddenly had competitors that, up to that point, hadn't really been all that competitive. GM rushed to try and make small cars, but the results weren't always successful. This is around the time where people would start pointing out some production quality issues with GM vehicles in general in the various lines, Uh, and I think we can attribute that to a lot of different factors. But a big one, I would say, is this incredibly rushed need to completely change the way you went about making cars in order to make cars that would uh, would be in line with new fuel economy standards that the U.S. government had set. It was one of those things that really put the company on notice. Now, I want to be clear, this same thing was true for all American car manufacturers, not just GM. The U.S. government had passed these laws to create new fuel economy standards, so everyone had to rush in order to try and meet them as best they could or else pay really big fines. But this meant that the real innovations that would emerge due to these new restrictions would be a few years down the road as engineers tackled the problem and began to work up solutions. So in the meantime, companies were really just cutting corners anywhere they could to either meet these standards or they would have to pony up and pay fines. So GM's leadership was making some questionable decisions. For example, in order to create a smaller sedan marketed toward a prospective Cadillac buyer, which is, you know, again, Cadillac is the luxury end of the GM brands, GM introduced a model called the Cimarron in the early 1980s. That's C-I-M-A-R-R-O-N. I always want to say cinnamon when I see it. But the Cimarron looked a lot like a Chevrolet Cavalier. Now, if you've been listening to all these episodes, you know that GM's brands, Chevrolet is the lower tier. That's kind of like the entry level. It's it's the, 
the budget-priced vehicles. That, that was that brand, Chevrolet. And then Cadillac is on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? That's supposed to be the luxury brand. This led several journalists to compare the Cimarron to the Cavalier and say that there was effectively very little difference, at least externally, between the two, besides a several thousand dollar ticket price jump for the Cadillac. Like, they say, well, you could buy a, a Cavalier for several thousand dollars less, and it looks the same as as the Cimarron. That's what they were essentially saying. It didn't fare very well in reviews, and the sales were not great either. Cadillac would end the line of the Cimarron in 1988, and it became one of those examples that people would cite when they wanted to talk about the missteps that General Motors made during this era. In 1981, Roger B. Smith became the CEO of General Motors. Smith would lead GM for a decade, stepping down in 1990. So how did he do? Well, let me put it to you this way. When people make top 10 lists of the worst CEOs of all time, Roger Smith frequently secures a spot on that list. While he was in charge, GM went from holding nearly half the automotive market in the U.S. down to 35%. So what the heck happened? Well, a lot of those decisions didn't necessarily look terrible at the time, and some of them might have actually been pretty good decisions, but they were executed poorly. One huge decision, however, was to reverse Alfred Sloan's organizational design of having each brand under GM operating autonomously. So you might remember, Sloan set it up, so Buick operated almost like it was an independent company compared to, say, Oldsmobile, compared to, say, Cadillac, and so on. Smith reorganized the company, bringing things back to a more centralized approach. You could argue kind of the way Durant had it going when things were messy and difficult to manage. Smith essentially declared that Chevrolet and Pontiac, as well as GM's Canadian arm, would end up focusing on building smaller cars, and that the Buick, Oldsmobile, and Cadillac brands would focus on building larger cars. But Smith's approach to reorganizing disrupted processes that had decades of momentum behind them. And just like with a physical object in motion, if you disrupt something that has a lot of momentum, it frequently leads to a big crashed mess. The reorganization was supposed to streamline processes, but it often had the opposite effect. Things got far more complicated, and more layers of managerial staff were thrown into the mix in order to sort things out. But I think a lot of us have had experience in corporate America where adding more managers is like the opposite of a solution. It just makes the problem even more complex. Uh, So the company became really bloated at least on the managerial level. And the company began sharing more parts and designs between divisions that led to very similar cars coming out marketed as different makes and models. So at a casual glance, you could have three or four different cars in front of you. And when you look at them just, you know, casually, they may all seem to be the same vehicle. And then you go around the back and you see that every single one of them has a different badge on them, a different brand. So one's a Buick and one's a Cadillac and one's an Oldsmobile, but they all kind of look the same. That was a problem that GM was running into and it hurt the company's image. It was that whole Cimarron and Cavalier problem from earlier writ large. 
Smith also wanted to modernize and automate assembly plants, which isn't necessarily a bad idea. Uh, The goal was to create a really efficient process that would cut down on costs and it would eliminate the need for as many employees, which was something that the auto union wasn't too keen on for obvious reasons. The company would end up spending billions of dollars in an effort to modernize their various assemblies, but the move was a little bit ahead of its time. The robots didn't work out so well. There are some famous stories about robots failing to perform up to expectation, and these ended up being very costly mistakes that didn't just impede progress, they hurt the company in general. Smith also saw GM acquire the company Electronic Data Systems from former presidential candidate Ross Perot. Uh, That was a deal that cost more than $2.5 billion. Perot also would become a major stakeholder uh, in General Motors as part of this deal. In fact, he owned more shares than any other single shareholder in the company. Then Perot, in his unique style, spent a good deal of time dragging Smith's name in the mud in the media. He criticized various executive-level decisions, which... I mean, it sounds like there was a lot of ammo there to use. Perot and Smith would have many battles in the press and in boardrooms. In 1986, Smith and the board of directors were able to buy out Perot's share of General Motors, but Perot would still comment on the the progress or lack thereof of the company for the next couple of years. Smith also oversaw another big acquisition, the Hughes Aircraft Company, Uh, That one cost $5.2 billion, and these moves led people to say that he was paying far too much attention to diversifying GM's businesses, but not enough to the core automotive business, which was really in kind of a mess. Uh, Smith did see the formation of a new line of cars marketed as Saturn. That brand developed a kind of cult-like following, which isn't a joke. Our first new car, uh, my partner and I, our first car was a Saturn. And the experience of buying it felt kind of like we were being indoctrinated. Uh, it didn't stick with us because it turns out we're too lazy to be good cult members. So we just drove the car until I want to say the alternator gave out and we got rid of it. Uh, anyway, Smith's leadership led to Michael Moore releasing a documentary. It was his first film. This film focused on the impact of Smith's decisions on the automotive industry in general and on Flint, Michigan in particular. That film is called Roger and Me, and it includes scenes of GM workers calling for Smith's resignation, which would actually happen the following year, the year after Roger and Me came out. Smith voluntarily resigned as CEO in 1990. The movie also focuses on how GM was shifting more work to Mexico, So more jobs were going to Mexican assembly plants where GM vehicles were being made. Uh, That way, the company didn't have to deal with unions. They didn't have unions in Mexico, whereas that's something that was kind of a thorn in the company's side here in America. This was not a good look for General Motors. Smith left as CEO, but he stayed on with the board of directors until 1993. His successor, Robert Stemple had been with GM since 1948. He had begun as an engineer with Oldsmobile, but General Motors was in really bad shape, and it was exacerbated by the oil crisis of the 70s, Smith's leadership in the 80s, and then there was an economic recession in the early 90s. As a result, GM was losing money, so Smith led the board into voting Stemple out in 1992. 
Uh, I don't know if Stimple was actually doing a bad job or not. There's not a whole lot I've seen written about him. I'm sure there are books on the subject, but I didn't encounter them in my research. But uh, it seems to me like there were a lot of external factors that were impacting General Motors, and it might not have mattered who was in leadership at that moment. Uh, It still would have been a really rough time for the company because of those external factors. But that's just me kind of armchair analyzing based on the the research I came in contact with. It could be totally inaccurate, and I acknowledge that. Anyway, Roger Smith would actually step down from the board of directors in 1993, and at that point, the 14-member board of directors only had two people on it who actually worked for General Motors. The new CEO of the company was John Jack Smith Jr., and he would remain CEO for the rest of the 90s. In that time, General Motors began to recover from the various recessions and problems of the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. A dispute with unions would lead to another big strike in 1998, which had economic repercussions beyond the automotive industry itself. But the next really, truly big crisis to hit GM came in the wake of a developing economic recession and the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. At that point, the head of GM was Richard Wagoner Jr. He succeeded Jack Smith when Jack Smith stepped down in 2000. Now, remember when I said that Roger Smith, the guy from the 80s, often gets put down on a top 10 worst CEO list? Well, Wagoner often gets on those lists as well. See, it was while Wagoner was CEO that GM hit a truly low point. It lost 90% of its market valuation under his leadership. It, in fact, went bankrupt. It lost more than $82 billion. So the U.S. government had to come in and bail it out, effectively nationalizing General Motors, which means that for a while, GM was a state-run business here in the United States. At the same time, Wagoner pushed GM to adopt higher standards of vehicle quality. He also pushed for improvements to operational processes. He did oversee some pretty massive layoffs and plant closures. But at the same time, based on things I've read, it sounds like he really resisted making harder decisions, bigger cuts, which some analysts say he just didn't have what it takes to keep the business afloat. He didn't have the the guts to make those hard decisions. But I would also posit that these decisions were really super hard, particularly if you're actually thinking about the impact they have on people and communities. I mean, Flint, Michigan was hit incredibly hard during the 80s, and Smith's run as CEO contributed a great deal to that. So it must have been a pretty hefty responsibility to be in charge of this massive company that affects so many people's livelihoods, not just the people who work directly for General Motors, but their families and the communities they live in. But whether Wagoner deserves to be listed as one of the worst CEOs or not, the fact is that General Motors entered into a downward spiral. In 2004, GM chose to discontinue the Oldsmobile brand because Oldsmobile had kind of slid into unprofitability. I think a lot of people just established it as, that's a car for old people. It's called Oldsmobile, forgetting that it was named after Ransom Olds, the guy who founded the company. But that legacy car brand had to drive off into the sunset in 2004. 
the financial crisis of 2007, (laughs) the hits just keep on coming, it had a domino effect that also hit the automotive industry about a year later. Another energy crisis earlier on had shifted the market toward favoring fuel-efficient cars, which hurt big American companies that had kind of gone really hard with big trucks and SUV models, which are known for, you know, not being fuel-efficient. The financial recession also affected prices of raw materials. That, in turn, took a big bite out of profit margins. Now, you could try to deal with that by adjusting the asking price for vehicles and making them more expensive, but then you're in danger of pricing yourself out of the market. So it was really rough. The U.S. government then steps in. Now, it wasn't just to rescue a company, but also the people who depended upon that company as an employer. GM was not the only company to get bailed out by the U.S. government. Chrysler was another one, and Ford got a line of credit, although Ford had already gone through some major restructuring and was in a a better financial position to weather the crisis compared to General Motors or Chrysler. As part of this streamlining process to get things back under control, General Motors discontinued two other brands. One was Saturn, which had been around in some form since 1985, though it had never really been profitable, despite all the cult stuff. And the other was Pontiac, the companion brand to the old Oakland line, which itself had long since been discontinued. Oh, and General Motors had been the company behind the Hummer brand of SUVs based off the military Humvee that was first introduced in 1992. The 2009 changes led GM to pursue selling off the brand to another company, but ultimately all of those deals fell through. So General Motors instead mothballed the brand in 2010, though last year the company began to show teasers of a truck and an SUV with the Hummer name attached to them, Uh, not separately branded as Hummer. They are GMC-branded vehicles, but they have Hummer in the name. While GM initially explored divesting itself of Opel uh, back in 2009, that actually wouldn't happen until 2017, along with Vauxhall, the uh, UK-based car company that GM had also owned for decades. The Group PSA company acquired both of those in 2017. The U.S. government invested more than $50 billion into GM in order to bail it out for this crisis. In 2010, the U.S. Treasury Department began to sell off the stake it had purchased in General Motors and eventually netted $39.7 billion as a result. So it spent $50 billion to acquire those shares and made $39.7 billion selling them off, which is a net loss of $11.3 billion. Uh, Along with the other bailouts, it would turn out that around $10.5 billion would get passed on to taxpayers. That's what... The average citizen was helping pay for with their taxes, their federal taxes, uh, those bailouts of those big companies. That whole process actually stretched on for several years. The bailout didn't conclude until 2014. GM emerged from bankruptcy as two separate companies. The old GM was the one that was saddled with all the debt. So this blows my mind that you can do this (laughs) in business. You can have two new companies or two companies come out of it. You know, one company enters, two companies leave. One of those two companies is the one that actually has all that massive debt that caused you to go into bankruptcy in the first place. The newer GM had all the assets, 
although it also did have $17 billion in debt itself. So yeah, there was a lot of debt going on here. But the new GM was able to get rid of most of that debt, and it was able to move forward with just four brands at that point, Chevrolet, Cadillac, Buick, and the GMC truck and SUV lines. One of the consequences of all that debt is the effect on General Motors' requirement to pay federal taxes. So it largely doesn't, at least again, not on the federal level. And that's because the company can actually count the losses against all earnings. And so it frequently pays very little in federal tax, even if the company has had a really profitable year, which might not seem fair, but it gives GM the chance to set a new foundation for its business without those extra costs in the form of taxes. And that tax relief doesn't last forever. I mean, we were talking about losses of $82 billion that provided a lot of cushioning for GM to, you know, kind of get things moving again. So by 2022 or 2023, these those past losses will have essentially been accounted for, and GM will effectively be working with a blank slate. So there's a lot more that we could say about General Motors. Uh, for example, the company is, like many automotive companies, really focusing on hybrids and electric vehicles at this stage, uh, which is really cool, really exciting stuff. It's also interesting to point out that previous GM executives have often said that one of the biggest mistakes they made was not making an earlier in, you know, investment in electric vehicles. Some of them have said, well, yeah, I wish we had done it, not because I think it would have moved the bottom line, because it probably wouldn't, but it would have been a much better image issue, um, which also matters. It's crazy to think that sometimes you do things just because it looks good for the optics, in other words, a phrase that I hate. But in our world, it does make a difference. So like it or not, it's the world we live in. But that wraps up our series on General Motors. Um, there's probably stuff that we could dive much deeper into. Like I didn't even talk about how power steering works. I just mentioned it. But we'll leave that for future episodes. If there are any specific things you would like me to really dive into, let me know. I'll consider it. Or if there's some other topic you would love for me to tackle in a future episode of Tech Stuff, drop me a line on Twitter. The handle I use is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 